0: My guest today, Dinah Trout, got her master's degrees in both nutrition and public health at Tufts, a BS from Georgetown, and then took this kind of funny left turn. She co-founded what eventually became Health Aid Kombucha in 2012, along with her husband, Justin Trout, and her best friend, Vanessa Dew. And since the beginning, the trio has been committed to brewing the best tasting, super high quality kombucha on the market, And in a remarkably short window of time, they have become a dominant force in the kombucha marketplace. But here is the thing. Their company was never supposed to be a kombucha company. In fact, it started as a hair regrowth venture. That is right. We dive into this crazy and fun story today, along with how her Lithuanian roots and traditions have really informed her life and even found their way into her company and are kind of covertly um, imposed on the brand and on every bottle of kombucha that goes out into the world and so many other wonderful insights and stories. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
1: I have two sons now. One's only five months, so he's not speaking yet. But the other son is four years old, and he is fluent in Lithuanian. I have a Lithuanian nanny. It's a big part of who I am and what I want to keep alive.
0: Yeah. Why is this this so important to you? I mean, you're hanging out right now. You're raising a family in Southern California. Could not be different in so many ways. Yeah. Um, Why does it matter? It's funny because very often... You know, when you talk about the grandparents' generation, well, clearly, it's, it's really easy to understand why it's so important. And then the parents – but, like, at, with each generation, not so often people kind of just leave it behind or maybe there's a an increasing push to assimilate. Um, yeah. It seems like you've gone the opposite direction.
1: Well, I certainly think I assimilated. Like, we live in L.A. and speak English mostly yeah. and, you know. But, yeah, I guess if I give up, it's lost. Mm. So there's something to, and I think the Lithuanians in general, if you got to know the culture, they are a tenacious group that just will not let go. I mean, during the, a lot of countries in that area were occupied at the time and quickly moved to speaking Russian. Um, they never, lost Lithuanian their never culture. Did, did No, they right? like held on. And it's like their pride that yeah. they held on. So it's sort of like, it almost feels like my duty to keep it alive. And um, there's a lot I align with as far as the the culture goes. In fact, some, it's even on our bottle. Right, the, you co- may have not the noticed coat of it, arms but, Yeah, is the coat on. of arms. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's been a lot of war. It's a beautiful country, yeah. right on the Baltic Sea. It's incredibly beautiful. So, not surprisingly, um, it was often fought over, and. Yeah, I just feel like they've worked so hard to become independent and be who they are that it almost feels like my responsibility to keep it alive. Mm. I also feel like language, knowing another language is important. So that's, that's a reason for sure to keep it alive for my sons. And it means something. You know, it's not just like, you know, another language. It, it actually means something to us. He can communicate with his parents. I mean, his grandparents and his, even his great-grandparents. It's just like special connection. That. I kind of, I'm not a part of the Jewish community, although sometimes I wish I was, <laughs> it's kind of a little bit like that in that there's, you know, I don't know if you've, th- there's like a community immediately when you, when you, when you meet another Lithuanian, it's like, you know, a little bit about that person. Mm. Yeah. So that's why.
0: Yeah. That's pretty neat. I love just sort of like the passionate connection to like this has to stay alive. It matters, you know, with that, whatever else is going on in the world, this, the pace that life is happening. Because it's also, especially the level that you've embraced it, it's not just, hey, remember that this is where we're from. Mm. It's sort of like carving out time to study mm. and learn and participate and be interact, which is, it's a commitment I think we just don't see a lot these
1: yeah. days. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, I think, because it's just like everything else. It's easy to let this stuff go. No. And I think about it sometimes. I'm tempted. I'm like, seriously? Is right. he going to teach his kids Lithuanian? <laughs> like, wh- why doesn't why don't I just give this up? I'm trying to do so much. But... Yeah, no you do it because it because if if you don't it dies. And so if it matters, you have to do it. If yeah. it matters to you, you know? And I just think there's such a like history there to know how your grandparents like fought to live. My grand my dad was born in a refugee camp. Like what? Mm. Like that has that story means something a lot more if he speaks Lithuanian and we go to Lithuania and we like talk about that history and culture. Because it's a part of our DNA.
0: Yeah, 100%. Because you also, I mean, when you were growing up, um, was that the only language spoken in your house? Or was it like a mix? It was a mix. Yeah.
1: I mean, it was only Lithuanian until we went to school. Got it, got it, got it. And then English kind of started.
0: Yeah. What is is that? I mean, was there much of a a community um, in Calgary?
1: Not in Calgary, but we had communities outside of Calgary. I went to Lithuanian summer camp every year in Vermont. So we had our communities. There was a small community in Calgary, but not much. My mom actually started the Lithuanian school and ran it in our basement every Saturday.
0: Oh, wow. So, so you were the place everyone went.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. So there was like a group of 10 of us in Calgary and we did it for until I was 16.
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, until, so I had moved from Calgary before 16, but I did Lithuanian school until I was 16. So let's see, till I was 13 in Calgary.
0: Right. Um, what are you into? Um, as as a kid come because I know eventually you end up in college and it seems like there's a really strong focus on on health and Mm -hmm. well-being and public health was that seed planted earlier or was that something you just kind of like stumbled upon when you hit uh, college and grad school
1: I think it started before college I've always had an interest in health. I mean, maybe I always had an interest in science, or at least I could say I was always good at science. But you know, when you're in grade school, I don't know that it was that apparent. Right before college in high school, um, I just, you know, I was, I really liked science and was interested in biology. And um, I had an opportunity to like do a few internships in and med- medical schools and I don't know if you remember that movie Patch Adams.
0: Yeah, of course, Robin yeah, Williams. Yeah, yeah. So
1: they, so right <laughs> I around think that the time, that made
0: so many people want to be doctors. Yeah, so like, like right, yeah, just GPS.
1: Yeah, so he yeah. had like a summer camp or like an internship right. for um, medically minded high school students. You had to apply. I got in, so I went to that. Like I, I so I kind of already was developing a um, an obvious. Proclivity to the health sciences.
0: Yeah, early on. Was it so? It sound, was med school, sort of like the, the path That's, that you thought yeah. you were going down.
1: Yeah, I thought I was going to go to med school, even in all, even until my very last year of university. Oh no, kidding! Mm-hmm. What happened? I was um, uh, an EMT at Georgetown on the side, like I did it for the Georgetown University Hospital. So I had a lot, a lot of opportunity actually in the hospital with doctors, and I just. There was something, and maybe it was the ER in particular, but there was something about it that didn't jive. So, two things specifically. One was the doctors were often lamenting to me about the amount of paperwork they did, and that, like,
0: which has not improved. <laughs>
1: yeah. Like, healthcare is not what it used to be, yeah. is what they would say. And you go in to, to heal patients, but you end up doing a ton of paperwork, and you only get two minutes with the patient. So, I think that I saw a little bit of that reality. And maybe I allowed the ER, you know, representation of that influence me too much because, of course, there's other areas of medicine. But that kind of was a data point. And then I had this experience, um, you know, where we brought a baby in and the baby died. And it was just like they had to move on. The doctors had to move on like very quickly. It was sort of time of death. And then and I just could not move on. (laughs) I thought this is not for me. Nah. Um so
0: you're like 20, 21 at that yeah, point also. Yeah. Was that was that it. your first or like up close exposure to death also or no?
1: Probably. Yeah. I mean, my grandmother had died, but she had lived a really long, good life. So yeah, that was the most. And it was more, it wasn't just the death per se, because they worked really hard yeah. to keep the baby alive. It wasn't that. It was just that how quickly they had to move on. And I just, I don't know, there was something about the whole experience of those two things that said, maybe I don't want to be a doctor. And then I had an opportunity at at my senior year to do an internship with a woman named Dr. Artemis Samopoulos, who is a really awesome nutritionist, also a doctor. And she coined the term the omega diet, Mm. which you may have heard of. She was one of the first to really understand and study the benefits of omega-3s and fish on diet and then after that came this, you know, exposure of the Mediterranean diet, which even still today is thought of as the healthiest diet. And so she wrote the Omega diet and and she needed an intern for six weeks to help her write her next book, which was called The Good Fat Diet. And I had an opportunity in my senior year of college to do that. Mm. So I was her research assistant and basically I did all and that was back in the day pre cell phones. So you're in the library photocopying. So I did all the research for that book. And um, I just really loved that aspect of health, how food could influence health. And so those things all together made me pivot from going to medical school to going to nutrition school. And I think food has also had a really big part of my my grow-up life, too, or my um, formative year. in my uh, Growing up, my mom cooked everything like home cooked meals, healthy meals every day. I mean, I was definitely the kid in in, in high school that like had a very special lunch, you know, it, was, it wasn't peanut butter and jelly. It was like, <laughs> you know, roasted t- peppers with basil and chef cheese on focaccia bread that my mom made from home. So like, there's no question that that had a part of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: At that age, I'm curious, were you the kid where everyone was like, ooh, you're like, what a Donna bring in for lunch today. Or as a teenager, are you like, oh, man, I just want to be like, can I just yeah. have a lunch like everybody else?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I wanted a lunch like everybody else. because right. I wanted Doritos and peanut butter and jelly like everybody else. I'm like, God, that's have to carrots again. But not too much. I actually really liked the food my mom cooked. Uh, mostly, actually, I would just give it away because I had so many friends that showed up with just like a few bucks to buy mm. stuff out of the vending machine. So I would like share my lunch with them. No, I don't think anybody made fun of me too much. It was, I went to an all girls Catholic school too though. So like, I don't know. It wasn't really that, that type of environment. Thank goodness.
0: uh, So you have this experience senior year of college. I'm I'm fascinated by, and we've talked about on the podcast here and there, this concept of sliding doors and people just dropping into your life Mm. that literally will change the trajectory of everything past that. Um, Hmm. And, and I'm always curious, like, you know, like what would have happened if this one person, this one moment, this one project didn't drop in? Do you have a sense that you were still trending in that direction? Do you think like it, that thing literally, like had it not happened, you would have been an entirely different place?
1: You know, I hadn't thought about it until now, but I think that that changed the trajectory because even before that, while I had grown up eating good foods, I wasn't like into cooking or anything in college yet. And really, it wasn't until I spent that time researching omega-3s and just learning a lot about nutrition and their real impact on health from her, from Dr. Samopoulos. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that. But I, you know, I went to medical school and it was in medical school that I even further fell in love with food and further got into how it can heal people and having fun with food. I learned how to make kombucha there. I don't think I would have ever learned how to make kombucha (laughs) <laughs> if it wasn't for Dr. Samopoulos, which is funny because I'm not even sure she knows what kombucha is.
0: That's too funny. Yeah, I never um, thought
1: about it like that. I guess I should send her a thanks. <laughs> 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 and as soon as you said that, a few other people popped up You know, right. down the line.
0: Which... Right. We always have those. Like the people or the moments or just like the circumstances. We're like, huh. It, life would be profoundly different had not like this thing that I, I couldn't have seen coming just happened. Yeah.
1: And it really was a pick of the hat. Like yeah. we had the internships you picked from a hat.
0: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So this wasn't even like you saw this and you chose it. You are like, this is what I want. It right. was just kind of random.
1: It was random. Yeah. There were internships set up for the class and you picked out of a hat and that was the one you got. I mean, they were all health science oriented because yeah. we were all pre-med. But um, yeah,
0: that's amazing. So you then go and um come out of Georgetown and this becomes like your primary focus, Go on to pursue. You said med school or master's? Did I went directly
1: t- into Tufts. Right. Um, I was actually in a PhD program first. Okay. You know, nutritional biochemistry was what I was studying. And it was, you know, the thing about PhD programs and nutrition is they can be anywhere from seven years long to 20 years long, depending on how long it takes for you to do your work. Right. So I really didn't know how long I would be there, but I was there to study nutrition. And I kind of envisioned that I would be a research scientist at that point.
0: So that was the future picture. A little bit. That's the direction I'm going to go. Yeah. You're saying a little bit like your face is like, eh, kind of, but maybe there wasn't even much of a picture.
1: Yeah. You know, I guess my whole life I've never, I mean, until now, I've never really been sure like what the end of the staircase looked like. I, I, I think what got me to that point was a little bit like I was good at science I was interested in health sciences and I just kind of kept taking one step in front of the other. And I was in grad school. Like I didn't, it's not like I was in grad school saying, oh, I want to be this. Like, oh yeah. You know? So in some ways I tell people that like I was in grad school because I didn't really know yet, you know, which is sort of embarrassing to say. But I think I was still figuring it out, but like honing in. Yeah. Because then it only took me a year to realize, well, that's not what I want to do. I was spending time in the lab recognizing that's not where my best mm. you know use of self is so i pulled out of the phd program and admitted myself into the masters a double masters program so a master of nutritional biochemistry which was the phd version just minus the dissertation part right just the studies of it and then a masters in public health which was my attempt to engage with people more because that was the thing missing in the research side mm. i felt like i'm in the room with rats all day Like I'm, I want to talk to people, you know, I got jokes to tell. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought like, okay, public health, that's now, you see how it's kind of all coming together? I'm like people and health. Got it.
0: Um, It's interesting also because coming from Canada, you could have stayed in the system there, fantastic education system, but you chose to come to the U.S. system. But in Canada also, you would have been forced to specialize in sort of like, you know, it seems like that system, there's a lot more pressure to kind of like, Choose early, specialize, and stay the path. Mm. Where, whereas you know the system is different here, it's sort of uh, doesn't necessarily encourage, but it's a lot easier, I think, to sort of. It may add years to the journey, but it's easier to kind of say, "Yeah, not quite right. Let mm. me try this. Let me try this."
1: I think I did end up having a pretty um, focused path in university because I went to the school. I, I was sort of convinced that I was going to go into health sciences. So Mm -hmm. I went into the school of nursing Ah, and health sciences at Georgetown. So I was already specialized. So I guess I kind of followed that. So you kind of recreated it here. I guess so. (laughs) Yeah, because Georgetown has a bunch of schools. There's like the business school. So I was in the nursing school, which had the health sciences and pre-med arm. So a lot of those people fed into nursing or or, uh, um, medical school.
0: Got it. So you come out of that. You end up stepping into uh, pharmaceutical land.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. I met Justin, co-founder in Boston.
0: Right. Who would eventually become your husband.
1: Yep. And he was a musician. Like, and I met him because, well, I was really trying to find friends in Boston. I loved everybody in my nutrition school, but I don't know. I was like longing for a non-science creative set of friends and so I got a job as a hostess in a restaurant in Boston, and he was the waiter there. So that's how we met. And um, we, when we, when I was done with graduate school, he was done with Berklee College of Music. And we basically knew that for him to pursue music, it was going to be L.A. or New York. Mm. And I just had enough of the cold. <laughs> so we really did move here for the weather. I guess the weather and the music.
0: That's amazing. So you guys end up touching down in L.A. He's sort of like focusing on the music side of things. Mm-hmm. You're, you get the full-time job at a pharmaceutical company with sales, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and it sounds like you also get kind of like cherry-picked pretty quickly mm-hmm. and dropped into this leadership experience, which yeah. really opens your eyes yeah. in a lot of different T- ways. Tell me B- more about B- that.
1: That was another like sort of marquee moment, I think, for me. So I did well on the sales side. And they picked 12 individuals across the country to be what they called change agents. So taking you back to this period of time, this is right when generic medicine is starting to come out. Mm. And so there was competition for the first time for medicine. And so therefore, you know, growth rates were down for their sales. And there was a lot of attrition. So we were having layoffs. Every company was having layoffs like every six months. So it became, it once was a very secure, steady job right. where people were like 25, 30 years in the same job. Now suddenly they're losing their friends. So it, it became a completely different culture. It went from a great culture to a very scared culture. Productivity then went down, dot, dot, dot. So Andrew Witte was the CEO at the time, and I thought he was pretty progressive to think that, um, you know, he could bring some internal change agents to help drive engagement. So he picked his top salespeople to then basically change. Okay, your 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 customer is no longer the doctor. Your customers now are employee, and your job is to improve their engagement and their love for our company.
0: Interesting that he would pick top <laughs> salespeople. Yeah, for that.
1: I know. I thought it's actually really smart
0: because <laughs> they're the ones who actually have the ability to influence.
1: I think decision so. making
0: and change. Like, I mean, or it behavior worked. Change, yeah, yeah.
1: It was a really cool opportunity. I mean, it, it was, it was the main reason I ended up starting Health Aid. Like it, it was the marquee thing.
0: What What did it teach you or show you, or what skills did it give you, or experiences did you have like that that would make you say that?
1: So two things. Uh, And just to give you a little background on the job. So I would mentioned that our goal was to improve engagement. We each got a geography in the country. So mine was like the West Coast, basically top to bottom U.S. And they gave us an unlimited budget. I mean, it wasn't like go spend, but it was sort of like, you know, we don't know here. So just spend wisely. Here's a credit card. And we're going to track engagement in your geography from the beginning to the end. And just kind of like there was really no structure. So two things that there was 12 of us and we were a bit of a team. What I learned was I thrived in the lack of structure huh. and being autonomous and having an un- unlimited budget. Just like I had no problem with being like, got it. I got the goal. I'm right. on I'll my way. i figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And the reason I especially noticed it was the 11 others really struggled with that. hmm constantly looking for check-ins and needing more structure from somebody and it, there was a lot of sort of turmoil about like well, what am I supposed to do you expect me to and I was sort of like don't ask just go you know follow your gut follow your intuition about like how you think this you know you might drive engagement so so one was I kind of just noticed that lack of structure and autonomy I liked it and that was unusual compared to the others the second thing was actually what I learned in the in the process. So I ended up meeting with each of the teams in the entire coast. Uh, I must have met with, you know, hundreds of teams. So it was kind of like a business school crash course in teams, team performance. I knew who did well, who didn't do well from a performance standpoint. Um, What drove performance, engagement, what type of management, you know, affected Mm. what type of team. It was so cool. And I was just like soaking it all up. And then I just felt like I took, had so many major takeaways from that experience. Just I understood, I felt at least that I understood what drives people to work harder and what inspires people and what type of management and leadership works. And so when I finished that job, I was like, oh, yeah, like I need to go be in a place where I'm leading people affecting what I'm lear- what I've learned in management and people and, and leadership and at the same time being in an ato- entirely autonomous place with right. no structure a lot
0: of, right a lot of free <laughs> hmm, sounds like a startup to me
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. well and then also like that internship end I, I won the award by the way for the for the best uh, most improved engagement. And I went back to my sales job because it was like just a one year thing, yeah. which was super structured, no autonomy, like very kind of, and I just, I became so unhappy in mm. that year. It was like I had I'd gotten a taste of freedom and then, and success. And then, you know, but I think, I really thank GSK for all of that because had I not gotten the experience, I don't know that I would have gotten the confidence.
0: Yeah. how unusual your MO was compared to like the other 11 people who are out there yeah. doing this. Because I think a lot of times people are sort of like wired for as as founders or entrepreneurs or people who are in some way, for some reason, more comfortable than others stepping into the abyss where you just don't know what's going to happen. And you don't necessarily have structure or strict guidance or rules or bounds or constraints. That freaks most people out. Most mm-hmm. people shut down in mm-hmm. that scenario. And there's the occasional person in this case, one out of 12, what is it, 8% or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Who there's something in the brain which says, oh yeah, yeah, this is like, I'm okay here. And, and not only that, but I'm thriving in this space. Um, so it's interesting for you to ha- not only have that experience, but also observe that it was really unusual that you reacted that way.
1: Yeah. And that's where I got some of that confidence Yeah, was I realized like, huh, this is like hard for other people, but not for me. I mean, I will say I still had a lot of fear and that's something I always want to make sure I articulate because um, of course it's scary. You're going into something, you feel like you might lose your job. Um, You know, you don't know what you're doing. There's no guidebook. And that's been the same for entrepreneurship. It's scary, but yeah, there is something different about entrepreneurs. I find they go forward anyway and they're okay with that. Like they're okay, they're okay with they almost like they almost like they there's something about the fear that drives them instead of stops them. So you said it right when you said some people shut down. Yeah, like I didn't shut down. Yeah. That made me go harder.
0: Right. It's almost like it's fuel for your system. It's not that I mean it's interesting cuz I've often heard people say like be fearless and uh, a I actually don't believe that state exists. Mm-mm. Um and, and it is more about Feeling it, but somehow having the ability to reframe it as possibility, mm-hmm. bundled with risk and bundled with stakes. Yes, but seeing the possibility side as being a stronger pull than the the push to step back from the you know like the fear and the risk and the, and the stake side of it. And I've seen some people just seem to be wired that way naturally, and other mm-hmm. people actually develop practices that allow them to be okay enough there so that they, get, they can kind of live in that space long enough to create magic, but it seems like you were the person who just kind of is is, is wired that way. It sounds like Mm -hmm. at least.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are, I mean, still to this day, building and leading this business has been a constant sort of like sprint and recover model of, you know, and then, and you find a new fear and it's, it's always scary. Like I've, I could tattoo it on my body. There's no safe way to win. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's never felt safe. So over time, the benefit you have, at least the benefit I've had, is that you become more familiar with it. So I guess that comfort gives you some level of like superiority over it. Mm. Like you can contr- you, yeah, it's you like I be, know I be, it. I've
0: been here before and I yeah. made it through. So yeah. we'll figure this out too. Right. But yeah. the fear
1: doesn't go away. Right. Now, I would never say I'm fearless at all. In fact, you know, last week I was scarier than I've ever been, you know, and I always feel like my company could just go.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and maybe that's. I don't know if that's what drives me. But, yeah, at times I do have to rely on a discipline to get through it. And it really is just me reminding myself that I can do it. And I've done it before. Right. It's sort of like bet on yourself.
0: Yeah. So this company that we've referenced um, a a number of times now, Healthy Kombucha, we're going to talk about what it's grown into. But I love the origin story, too, because you didn't (laughs) set out to start a kombucha company. (laughs) So, So, like share what really happened here.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, no, it's, we call it from hair loss to health aid, which is probably not what you'd expect. So I'd mentioned, so we've already set ourselves up. I'm feeling unfulfilled at my job. I've also had this taste of autonomy. My co-founder and best friend at the time, Vanessa, also was feeling unfulfilled. She worked at the same pharmaceutical company. She didn't have the opportunity I did as a change agent, but she was just somebody who, also, I knew didn't ever need structure. She always won the awards. She was just like really good, and um, she was feeling unfilled. And then Justin had been working at the music game tirelessly for five years and like barely making ends meet. So these the three of us were just like, "Come on, there is more for us out here," you know. So we started an entrepreneur club and we started coming up with ideas. Justin at the time was working for, on the side, outside of music to make money, was working for an entrepreneur who made a ton of money selling tap-on hair. So not anything that actually solved the problem of, of hair thinning, but helped cosmetically conceal it with basically hair that you tapped on, and then when you showered, it would go away. They used to sell it on Sky Mall. Hmm. So did really well, and Justin just was so inspired by... You know, this business because it just worked so well and it wasn't even that great of a product. So Justin brought to the table, to the Entrepreneur Club table, hey, like if we could find a solution that actually works in hair loss, I, I think we could actually really win here. <laughs> and my background of like food and holistic nutrition, I was really interested in finding a natural way because when mm. I did the research, there was a ton of chemicals but and even pharmaceuticals, but nothing natural. So right. we started researching what would regrow hair. That's where it all started.
0: Which is kind of, I mean, that's been sort of like a holy grail as a potential business solution for generations now. I
1: guess so. Because
0: the problem's never going away. Yeah,
1: right. So we start researching what we re- regrow hair, and we find that all over the internet um, are YouTube videos of people in parts of the world that are using the culture of kombucha, also often called the SCOBY. It looks like a little pancake, and it—it it is the it holds all the probiotics that basically ferment the tea. Anyway, they use this culture as a mask on the head. And, you know, like they, some of them mix it with like avocados and put it on some, put the pancakes just straight on the head. But like all this, you know, anecdotal stuff of the kombucha culture actually regrowing hair.
0: Right. Is the researcher braining you also wanting like Oh, yeah. Okay, like, where? <laughs> yeah, yeah. show me the science behind it. So because it. we talked right. about
1: the science background, I will go into that right, part, right. because there was this whole period of me saying, okay, we're, we're conducting a research experiment here, instead of just, let's make a SCOBY yeah. uh, mask, which is sort of what I tell people, because, you know, it's not a necessary part of the story, but it is kind of funny. So that you all know, um, to make a SCOBY, you make a batch of kombucha, because each batch basically the scoby replicates so from one batch you after you're done fermenting you'll get two and then you can use two of those and they'll each make one so then you get four and then you get 16 right. and so on and, and so and forth
0: and for those who don't know what kombucha is by the way it's a, a ferment how would you describe it a fermented beverage it's
1: fermented tea right um it doesn't taste anything like tea in the end sort of right. like how wine doesn't taste anything like grape juice um but it, it tastes really delicious it's a little bit sweet a tiny bit tart and it's And it's filled with probiotics and healthy organic acids. So it's kind of should be viewed as like a soda replacement or a juice replacement that makes you feel good with way less sugar. Got it. Cool. Okay. Um, So that's how you make cultures. And I had learned how to make kombucha back in graduate school. So I knew how to make it. And I already had a really strong culture um, that I like brought with me from Boston. So um, so
0: you'd literally been traveling with like the the source culture. Yeah.
1: And I had no idea it was going to be like my identity, but I'm like, I know how to make kombucha and I make a really good kombucha. Therefore, my SCOBY is probably pretty good. Therefore, it will save the world from baldness. (laughs) So we thought. So I'm like, okay, but we're not just going to like start making this thing. We've got to prove that it works. The scientist in me um, got, got some stage time. So the next step was to assess Justin's rate of hair loss because his hair was already thinning at 28 pre scoby use and so we didn't have any money i mean we had like 600 bucks to put toward this effort so there was no like scientific um or was no like laser we could buy to to see how much hair was on justin's head so the way we did it was every day when he he took a shower we would gather in the drain what hair (laughs) was in there. And for 60 days, we would count the number of hairs and then like log it in an Excel sheet. So like day one, 13 hairs, day two, 13 hairs. So I was trying to get an average amount of hair loss. Yeah. So we did that. And I just, I how, know Vanessa. How is he
0: feeling just personally <laughs> about I know, this? Right?
1: Vanessa and I, we used to do, we would all do the counting. Um, and I just know that that was, that's a memory that we all have, like rolling the hairs up and like writing down the log number. It's too funny. So um, we hadn't even got gotten to putting the scoby on Justin's head yet. That was the plan. But about 60 days of doing this research project, And we were so hungry to get started. I mean, one thing you should know about Justin, Vanessa, and I is we are like very turbo mode type of people. We're not like patient. So at this point, we already wanted to start a business. Like we already wanted to start a business 10 years ago. Like it was, we couldn't wait. So this science experiment was kind of like nagging on us because we had to complete it, but we didn't want to. And Vanessa had a friend that worked at a farmers market. Um, she was like the manager at Brentwood Farmers Market, which, for those of you not in LA, it's one of the biggest farmers markets here. It's all every week, all year round. It's it's a pretty big opportunity to sell there. It's actually like some um, sometimes like a twelve month late wait if there's a ton of people that already sell your type of food or beverage. So. It was a big opportunity. And she said, there's a farmer that's out for the summer months. You can have this center spot if you want it to sell your hair loss thing. Because she had known about it from a, Mm -hmm. you know, conversation they had. And so, you know, we said yes before we even had put the SCOBY on Justin's head, before we even really created a product.
0: Right. Got locked down the spot.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, but we just said, we're going to figure this out. We're not losing this opportunity. So this was like February. And the spot opened in March. So we had like six weeks, something like that. It was like middle of March, March 26th was going to be the day. And this was the beginning of February. So we had like six weeks to get a product. We did not think that was going to be that hard. How hard could it be? We've got the SCOBY. Anyway, we, we, we spent an afternoon trying to mix the SCOBY with avocados and it was harder than we thought to make like a premium cosmetic product. (laughs) So Who, who knew, who knew? Now, one thing you should know is that what what I had been doing at this time, not just counting Justin's hair in the sink, which was a glamorous job, I had been already preparing for the fact that I was going to need a lot of scobies. So every week I was making as much kombucha as I could in order to cultivate these cultures. And I was putting the cultures aside. The liquid was kind of like this, this like annoying byproduct that I would just bottle. I wouldn't throw it out because it was really good and delicious kombucha, but I just bottled it and put it to the side and kind of gave it to my friends when they came over. But it was starting to take over my apartment because I kept making so much kombucha. So at one point I had like 60 cases in a tiny one-bedroom apartment right by the Grove in L.A. And I couldn't really get rid of enough. It was like taking over. So anyway, when we realized we couldn't make the hair product, but we had already signed up for the farmer's market and we didn't want to lose the opportunity to like make some money and start a business, we, we pivoted to selling the kombucha. Because we had that and it was good and it was bottled and it was ready to go. So then we took the next weekend to be like, okay, what's it going to be called? You know, and we came up with Health Aid, Follow Your Gut, The Anchor, all in a two-hour meeting.
0: So all the branding. Yeah. Two hours. Boom. Done. Yeah, (laughs) man.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Pretty cool. Um, And it makes me think a lot about how we can maybe overthink things. Yeah. Or take too long to do things. So, so this and this is a week out at that point. From yes. So, two, so two weeks. Two weeks. Out, two, I would say right? two weeks before the farmers market because then we had to like print the labels and scotch tape right. them. On, of course, because we're not going <laughs> to pay for a real label. Of course not. Um, yeah. And so we we but we didn't expect much. We thought the summer would um, we would learn about like business. We would sell some kombucha. Like even to us at that point, it wasn't going to be the thing. We we thought we would whatever money we made, we would put toward a laser machine that was going to count Justin's hair like that's that's what our mindset was got it so there wasn't a ton of pressure um you already
0: had the product made it wasn't like you had to spend money now at that point to make it this was the annoying byproduct of what the real business was going to be yeah and it would help clean out your apartment
1: yes and I knew it was a good kombucha (laughs) I mean the reason we hadn't thought about selling the kombucha was kombucha was was already for sale at this point everywhere you could get the guy who was the market leader um you could buy him at the you know, convenience store at this point. So this I was, was sort of like... 2012? Yeah, 2012. Right here. So to us, we were like, we're not going to beat him. He's like the Goliath. We don't know anything about beverage, but... Okay, so we did the farmer's market and it just blew us away. So two things we learned here, a little bit similar to that leadership experience, that one was about how we're different and then the other was actually the lesson. But So the first was we... We learned how much we love to sell and just love business. And we were really good at uh, just naturally tenacious, I would say. We started uh, in the farmer's market with a bunch of other companies similar to ours. One was like a cool chocolate company, another cookie company. We all became kind of friends, all trying to start a brand from scratch. And We just grew way faster than them. And mm-hmm. it wasn't because it just happened like that. We just would not let it do anything but that. So we're those types of people and I think that's a part of it. Um, A part of our success at least has been that we just didn't let it fail. So like the first farmer's market, you know, we wanted to beat the 10 o'clock sales from last market. So I had Vanessa at the front, Justin at the back. Like We didn't let one person walk by
2: Hmm. without
1: trying kombucha. It was like you, (laughs) you haven't tried it yet. Come on over, you know. So there was that piece that we kind of learned, oh, okay, we're like we like are good at this. And then the second piece was people couldn't seem to get enough of our kombucha. It was like a line down the, 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 the in the farmer's market, like literally from when it opened to when it ended, it was like a hmm. complete buzz. And so we finished the summer being like, why would we leave this? This is, there's something here.
0: So you're doing it pretty much every week. For yeah, the So we still point. had our jobs.
1: Right. So we still had our jobs. It was nights and weekends.
0: Right, and are you? Are, and you're showing up every week, and the, the same experience, like it's just selling out and selling out and selling yeah. out. Yeah,
1: like we were sold right. out so by the, eleven. The
0: market is telling you, green light, like go. Yes, yeah. we want. <laughs>
1: yeah, so we went from one market to three markets. By the end of that summer, we were oh, no in kidding. three markets. Yeah, and so each of us was running a market, and same thing in each of the markets. Like we were in Larchmont, Calabasas, and Brentwood.
0: Are you still thinking at that point that well, this is cool and all, but hair loss is still like the ultimate jam? Or by the end of the summer, had you kind of said, "Oh, there's something else happening here"?
1: Yeah, I would say even even a month or two, like once we went from one market to two and the, had the same experience in the second, I yeah. think we all kind of realized there was something here.
0: Right, it's not a fluke. Yeah. So where where do you go from there? Because you're all you still got to pay the rent. You know, like you're you're working full time jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, you love this thing. You've got a great product that's working. And also, which is kind of an interesting dynamic, it's you, your husband, and your best friend, which does not always make for the no. for the best sort of a dynamic in, yeah. a, in a new company, let alone sort of like a, a, a really fast-growing company.
1: Yep. Yep, there's that whole angle. But, I mean, just to to touch on the first part, like, yeah, we needed our jobs for the money, Um, But luckily, at least Vanessa and I were in a sales job where we had a lot of autonomy over our time. So what started to happen, though, was we were doing a crappier job at our job. Mm. Like our numbers were going down because I was spending more and more time doing health aid. And at the end, toward the end of the year, right around October, um, we'd continued in the farmers markets. We were still doing this whole thing. But it was to the point that we were working until like one in the morning every night and getting up at four in the morning every morning. I mean, it was just like a real grind and it was wearing us out and we were like maxed out. So we got to a point in October where we said, what are we doing? Like, we can't keep doing this. So, and we all knew that health aid had something and we weren't gonna really see that potential if we didn't really give it a shot. So there was something in us that just was like, you gotta quit your job and do this. Like we just knew it, even though everything on paper, that did not make sense. You know, because there was not enough income from health aid yet to cover the three of us for sure. We didn't have enough savings. There was no security. Farmer's market's just one thing in the bubble of L.A. Like, are we really going to succeed outside of that? So everybody was sort of like, keep keep doing this. Test it first. But I guess we're a little bit rebellious. And we decided, the three of us, that we were all going to quit our jobs in December. And January 1, we were going to be all in.
0: Did you set sort of like... A drop dead date, also, where like if we don't hit X by this particular date and time, whether it's sales or revenue or money, whatever it is, you know, we'll go all in until here. But if we don't hit this certain thing by this time, like we're, we, something has got to change. We got to go back to our jobs. I think that
1: would have been a smart thing to do, but we, we, no, we were just like, we we're, just we're just doing like, this. It, we're we had in. no, uh, any, there's nothing else in our mind except we were going to succeed at this. Yeah. But it. I wouldn't call it confidence. It was almost naivete, like it wasn't confidence. I wasn't like so sure we would win. It was more like my life depends on it or something. I can't quite explain it very well. Every time I try, I feel like it, I don't quite hit it, but it almost felt like I had no other choice. Like it was like being done to me. Like, <laughs> and I, I've heard other entrepreneurs say that too. Like you become an entrepreneur because you have no choice. Like, and, and there really was this calling Of just like, this is what we're going to do now. And it doesn't make sense, but we're going to do it. And like, I didn't have money to pay the rent. Like, I had only money to pay the rent for a couple months, I think. Saved up. So like, you know, we weren't thinking long term. It was just like, we're going to do this. And it's going to work out somehow.
0: (laughs) So I just trust in the universe or in our efforts and and basically everything. Because pretty either right around there or pretty soon after also... Mm -hmm you also end up getting evicted. Oh, yeah. So so it's like all of a sudden, not only the place you live, but the, quote, factory,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, kind of ceases to exist in all of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was a scary time. So actually that was after we um, quit our jobs. That was like a good four or five months after. So essentially what happened when we quit and I would say this is a marquee moment for health aid. Um, so an important, a really important moment for us was when we quit our jobs because now where we were before spending split time doing it, we now were spending all of our time doing it. And because there was no other income coming in, it was like we were starting to think smarter about mm-hmm. it. Like, how do we really drive revenues to just, you know, pay our bills? Right. And so it was then that we hired independent sales reps. We literally put, a, put an ad on Craigslist you know, anybody want to sell kombucha for free? <laughs> for free kombucha in exchange. Oh, and by the way, if you open an account, and as soon as they start paying for kombucha, we'll give you ten percent of that check. We had a, a good twenty people interested that showed up, and we trained them. I remember in March, uh, the Mar- March one year after we had sold our first bottle at Brentwood, we had our first uh, you know, training with mm-hmm. these twenty folks, and a lot of them were like yoga instructors that had some. Time or actors with you know time, and just loved kombucha, and they joined us. And what's kind of cool is from that first meeting, we still have one of our employees today, and she's like moved up pretty far up the company. She's a senior director now and runs all of our natural accounts. But anyway, so her name's Megan. She started as a yoga instructor in that first class. Um, Okay, so you know things like that. Where we went from three people running the business, me, Justin, Vanessa, to. 20 20 a footprint of 20 around la so we went from like seven stores to 300 in just a matter of weeks Mm. and so that was like you know a real bump and then we got our first distributor because we recognized they could get our product even to more places and then that just continued to explode things now at around that same time we didn't get evicted because because of money we got evicted because you can't run a business out of your apartment and you know it wasn't like quiet at this point. We were like making kombucha all day long and our my apartment had turned into a bed and kombucha everywhere. Hmm. So it was pretty much like not an apartment. And kombucha is fermented tea and when it ferments it creates acids which have like a scent. Right. It smells a little bit like apple cider vinegar. So, you know, my neighbors weren't happy about that. It was like a tiny apartment and they're like, dude, our place smells like apple cider vinegar, like every day, you know, so totally get it. (laughs) When we got evicted, we're like, yeah, we deserve that. (laughs) So, um, you know, but we didn't let this stuff stop us. It's funny because I I posted something on Instagram today about another moment we had down the line where I think a lot of people would have quit. And, you know, getting evicted might be one of those moments, too. But I think those are the most important moments that you don't quit. When I think about, like, why we've been successful, I I think about those moments. Because I think then they're not the ones that are often celebrated. They're certainly not the ones that you get a trophy for. But it's those, like, low moments that you don't quit, but everybody else would have quit. I think those are the ones that make the difference. Anyway, so we lived out of our cars for a little bit, found our way to another place, you know, decided the apartment wasn't a good place, that forced us into a commercial kitchen. That was the smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. What was the so that was one of those, um, like bringing you to your knees and like are you in or are you out moments? What was the other one that you shared? That you just oh, posted? there
1: have been so many, but the one I was that I posted about today was um, one um, it was 2014, so another year after that, we invested our first time in um, I guess sponsoring, although really it was just selling at a music festival, Treasure Island Music Festival in San Francisco. We were starting to st- sell in stores there, so we wanted to, quote-unquote, like, launch the city. And we were spending $10,000 to be a part of this festival, which was a lot of money for us at that time. Just to give you a sense, like, when Heineken or something sponsors a concert, I mean, they're probably spending millions, um, certainly hundreds of thousands. So 10000 was nothing compared to that, but it was a lot to us. Right. So, Okay, so we're gonna go. So Justin and I fill up a 28 foot refrigerated truck that we rent, and we're gonna go out there and like sell these concert goers um, our brand. And driving up the five, um, Justin flips the truck. We totally should have died. I mean, <laughs> it was a bad accident. And I think most people would have probably called it in that day, but we were like so determined, and this was like, ten thousand dollars we had already spent you know it was like so we just sort of ignored our dislocated jaws and bruises and like just we somehow in the middle of the five and we had to unpack the truck ourselves for salvage whatever we could nobody would help us because i don't know insurance reasons they brought us another 28 foot refrigerated truck we unpacked this one whatever was salvageable packed it back but like I'm sore. I would just gotten in like a life-threatening accident. So I'm like bleeding, (laughs) packing this truck. Then we drive and I'm like crying the whole way because we're driving 35 miles an hour because I'm so scared to go fast because we just, you know, the truck breaks down an hour later. We have to do it again, unpack, repack. And we get there and we freaking sell the whole weekend. Um, Luckily, I had a team that was there uh, to join us. And so it was like we weren't unsupported there. But, I mean, I just remember selling at Treasure Island Music Festival being like, something's not right with my brain. <laughs> it's, no, like it's buzzing. A, oh, possible concussion. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I look back at that moment and I'm like, gosh, I think a lot of people would have phoned it in. <laughs> I think they would have not gone to Treasure Island Music Festival, but we did. I don't know. It's, I think it's things like that. You don't get a trophy for that.
0: Yeah, most people don't even know that it happened.
1: Yeah. Of course. Right.
0: It's the internal stuff that just sort of like trips you up and you have to sort of like figure out.
1: Yeah. It's like you you just keep going anyway.
0: The other thing that occurs to me is that in the beginning, it's kind of like you you talked about your naivete was one of the things that, and and you weren't naive from a business standpoint. But I wonder if part of what you were reflecting on is the fact that the space you were going into, which, you know, is kombucha, but it's also the bigger space of CPG, consumer packaged goods. Mm Is known as being a kind of a brutal place to start any kind of business, um, in part because there's so many relationships that you have to have to have people carry your stuff. But also, it's a business which is massively overcrowded and requires a huge amount of capital because you've always got to be ahead with the inventory that you're selling. You've always got to be carrying so much cash in the form of product that That eliminates so many people so early in the game, even when they've they've got a concept or an idea and they're like, this is good. People want it. And then they realize they actually – they massively misunderstood the business side of it and end up just crashing and burning because there's – they hit a massive cash flow crunch. And you went into this and it sounds like to a certain extent not – knowing that maybe that was what... To a full like, was, extent. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to
1: a full... The only thing I was experienced in in business was the leadership piece. Everything else, uh, completely oblivious to, certainly, everything you just discussed. But I'm so happy I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because you
0: probably would have just said, mm, nah, too much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have even probably... I mean, because we didn't have any money. So, um and then the only thing I'll add to that, too, is we manufacture our kombucha. And I didn't know any of the realities of manufacturing either. You know, like, if I gave that girl from eight years ago a brewery tour of my brewery today, she would have quit. She's like, there's, I have no idea how to build that. No way. Like, that's not even in my, like, I, there's no way I could figure that out. But, you know, that's been an important lesson in entrepreneurship, too, is you don't have to know what's eight years ahead. You just have to know two steps ahead, (laughs) which is always available to you, by the way. You always see, you know, what's two, three, four steps ahead. You can see your options. You don't have to know. Like, that will come, you know. I'm really happy I didn't see that brewery. I'm really happy I didn't know how hard it would be that manufacturing has all odds against you, that consumer packaged goods is all odds against you.
0: Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's interesting how much sometimes... Yeah, you know, we want to research and know everything that we can possibly know. And sometimes it's the fact that we can't know just enough that allows us to keep stepping forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a really fine line, I think, mm-hmm. you know, between a certain amount of ignorance and a certain amount of knowledge and then a willingness to just like, you know, like keep going, keep going, keep going. And I think what you said also is really powerful in that we hear so many times that, you know, how are you going to get there if you don't have a picture of where there is? And um, you should make it as clear and vivid as possible. And sometimes we can do that. But the truth is, in the world of entrepreneurship, anytime you're doing something genuinely new or different, you can define the qualities of what you maybe want it to become. But with clarity, of the specifics, it's almost impossible.
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly how you're going to get there is impossible. Yeah. I mean – I guess we always had, when I think about that, I remember the three of us had the same vision always, and it was a little bit of a grandiose vision, um, one that probably many would say, oh, come on, give me a break. You know, what do you think, you Coke? Because we used to say, oh, we're going to be in every fridge in America in like two years. Like (laughs) That's what we thought. But the vision was right. Every fridge in America, that extraordinary vision is still one I hold today. It's just now nobody's going to tell me, oh, you're ridiculous. Now they're like, oh, you know what? You might just do that. But in the beginning, it was like, pff, nah. you know,
0: was there a moment
1: step down?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Was there a moment where in your mind, in your experience, where uh, a switch flipped and you went from thinking, oh, yeah, like this is more than just rah, 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 like keep us going commitment. But this actually is really going to happen. Or did, or did you actually believe that from the very, very beginning?
1: Mm. it's a really good question and I will tell you that no I did not believe that from the very beginning even though I was called to it like I was called to prove it but I didn't I didn't know it was going to happen and at this current moment I don't know what's going to happen but there was a moment not that long ago where I thought oh my gosh we're going to do this it's this so cool uh, and then that moment went away <laughs> And now I'm like, shit. I hope we're gonna do this, but again, I'm called. You're like, where to go? Where to go? (laughs) Yeah. So I guess it comes in and out that level of like confidence, but what doesn't leave is the drive. It's like a calling to do it anyway. So no, I don't know. I'm never sure. It doesn't ever feel like a sure thing. I guess there are moments where I think, oh gosh, maybe this is really gonna happen, but then they're fleeting um, because some curveball comes your way and you think, wow, again. I have no idea how to handle this. Am I going to, is this it? Is this it for me? This is my obituary. You know, everything I do, it feels like it's either going to be my greatest uh, legacy or my obituary as it relates to health aid. It's yeah. a, lot, a lot of pressure.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, you're, you're now in what, 30,000 plus stores yeah. around the country, around yeah. the world. Um, but it is interesting, right? Because from the outside looking in, people people probably look at, um, health aid or, or really any company the size of what you've built now with a distribution of product and certainly sort of like the brand and all the stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, like th- they're good. Like they've got it dialed in. They've quote made it and sure they'll st- still keep growing, but they're like, you know, they're on a trajectory and it's clear and it's growing and you can, looking back, you could pretty much plot it and see this massive exponential growth that keeps going. And so it's always so interesting to hear from you from the inside looking out yeah, you still have that aspiration, but on any given day, you open your eyes and you just don't know.
1: Yeah. No, you don't know. And I I know when you say the words out loud, I hear 30,000 stores. I hear that. I know the revenues we've made. I know that we continue to grow and have really strong growth. I don't know why that doesn't satisfy me. As it, like, I would think that from, if I were listening to somebody, I would say, yeah, like, you should celebrate that, you know, but it, like, I don't know why, but it does. I'm like, yep, yep, we're still, you know, one-tenth of the way there. It always feels like I'm, like, one-tenth of the way there. I don't know where there is. I guess it's every fridge in America. Um, I don't know what to tell you there. But I will say, did you watch the tennis match last night when Wang no. beat Williams? But did you hear about it?
0: No. Okay, so
1: Serena Williams, she's won, you know, 23 yeah. of these titles. Uh, the underdog from China, Wang, wins. And... The last, you know, a very kind of gut-wrenching, it's an awesome match. You should watch it. And at the end, it's Chinese New Year, too. And they ask her, are you going to celebrate tonight? You know, you've just beat the unbeatable woman. And it's Chinese New Year. Like, hello, you know. And she's like, no. No, I'm not going to celebrate. And I know everybody's kind of like, what? But me and Justin, we were watching, and we we're like, I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it. I don't know. I mean, we do celebrate, and I'm very grateful but I'm not like celebrating. Yeah, like we are. We have a lot to do, and it feels still like the business could—not that it could collapse. I mean, obviously, we're 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 a brand now that's established at some respect. But I I I don't feel like it's a sure thing forevermore. Mm. I I want to be like a Nike. There's a long way to go before we're like a Nike.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you bring that up because I remember reading film nights. Shoe Dog. Yeah, Shoe Dog.
1: Love and that
0: and there's so many, I mean, the parallels are, are kind of remarkable in that they were, they were a company at you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and any given day he would walk in and not know if that was their last day of business. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm always fascinated by this perception that is so different from the outside looking in versus like the lived experience of those who are actually in there. Yes. It's a very it vulnerable. It, yeah.
1: We do not feel I mean, even when I go and do podcasts, I'm like, let's hope I'm relevant in a year. <laughs> Seriously,
0: what do you have <laughs> though in your mind? What do you like? Is is there something that you like? Even maybe not utter publicly, but where like is there some clarity around like what is success or what is enough in this context?
1: Yeah, I mean, for health aid, it really is every fridge in America. Yeah. I think that like I keep saying that, and that feels right personally. I'm not doing it for any kind of fame. For me, like, I think I, I can, there will be a level of fear removed. Let's put it that way. If I have acquired enough of a um, bag of rocks, so to speak, that like, nobody can ever take it from me. <laughs> Like when Justin and I bought our house, that was like a really important moment. I'm like, nobody can take this house from me. It's mine. It's worth what it is. And like, it's mine, you know? Because right now all my money is still tied up in the equity of the company, really. So I guess personally, there's a piece of it that like when I have something that people can't take from me, I will feel like I, I can protect my family more. So there's that personal side of like immediate success. But I'm sure once that comes or if that comes, They'll be the next level of success um, defined. But right now, that's the personal one. And then on health aid, it's still like, how do we get more consumers to understand this is better for them than the soda they're drinking? Mm. And there's so many. I mean, it's like 2.6% of people have ever tried health aid. That's it. Ever.
0: So that's like that's like the good news, bad news story.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah.
0: Okay, so it's a small number, and look at the universe <laughs> of people out there. Yeah. who are like we still can you know like make yeah. a difference. Yeah. For. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, I, and part of the backdrop to this whole thing also is you know it's like the three of you working together, um, best friend, um, partner in life, now a parent also, mm-hmm. of a couple of young kids. I I remember starting a company. When I was much more recently married and had a three month old baby, so it's a, like you're starting two babies at once mm. um, and it's hard. and you know i'm I'm fascinated also by how people navigate that sort of like navigate the personal relationship, navigate the parenting relationship, and navigate what is effectively another like, marriage and family um in the context of the business and a sense of feeling like you're doing justice to all of them at any given time. And I sometimes wonder if that's even, if that's a possible aspiration. Mm. I know I've struggled with it. And so many people I know who founded things have, um, mm-hmm. and never found a sort of like a really easy answer or a solid ground or like, Oh, this is the way through.
1: Mm. Yeah. That is a struggle. It's a challenge. And, um, I will say though, it's gotten better. Um, and, There are specific things I think that I've done to help it get there. So I will just comment on the first thing. I would agree. I don't think at any given time I feel those are balanced, probably ever. But if you were to expand that snapshot instead of one moment of time, like in a month, have I been a good mom? (laughs) Have I been a good CEO? Have I been a good wife? Good to myself? That's now where I start to say, okay, yeah, I am. So in that way, I'm experiencing success, so to speak, in a balance, but it does require a change in my expectation instead of that being a, you know, moment to moment, am I always balanced and giving everything the right amount, um, you know, saying, okay, maybe I can't be a good mom, a great mom, like the mom that I, you know, want to be remembered by every single day. But if in a week's time, you know, both of my sons would say that once, okay, isn't that a win? (laughs) So really, it's a lowering of your expectations. <laughs> and then the second piece is we're really defining what's on that boat that gets your energy, on that lifeboat that gets your energy. I think if you have too many things on there, it will become overwhelming and you can burn out. So yeah, I had to do some work to define what are the things that I want to be right now in this moment with health aid as demanding as it is, with baby and four-year-old as demanding as that is, um, what do I want and what do I need? And so you know, some things didn't make the list. Things that I like. So, for example, cooking. I love to cook. I used to be known for that. I self-published a cookbook called Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah. It's awesome. I haven't cooked a meal in like a year. So I had to remove things even that I like, but they just weren't as important to me as the other things. So I picked essentially the things that I really want to be. So for me, it's I, I need to be a good I need to feel like I'm a good mom. Of course, I want to be a great CEO and I have my career aspirations. I want to be good to myself enough that I can be myself and be my happy self. And then I want to be a good wife. Those are like the four things. And so I now once I've defined that and kind of kicked everything else off, it's manageable and in a week's time, I have to carve out time to be each of those things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just happen. Oh look, I've got a couple hours off. Let me just uh, go get a massage. <laughs> so I carve it out, and so that in a week's time, I do feel like I can say, yes, I hit these these points. And so when I look when I expand that period even longer, and I look at like the last month or the last three months of the last year, I'm really proud of that, but it took work. You had to like carve it in. And you mentioned the husband best friend thing. You know, we spend a lot of time together at work, obviously, because um, we work together. But that's not husband-wife time. Yeah, so carving, being really disciplined to carve that in. But listen, that took like six years of work figuring that out. I feel like I'm only now at a place where we get that we have to carve out that time.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those concepts. I work with my wife also. She's uh, certainly in the business with us. And um, same thing. It's just... Being together all day every day in the context of the business is not the same thing, yeah, as being together, no. you know, like in the context of your personal <laughs> relationships. So,
2: it's worse. Come it's, on, it's it's
0: it's, it, and like so agree. I mean, so much of this is about being intentional, <laughs> yeah. Right. It's about saying okay, so let me understand what really matters to me, mm-hmm. and let me be really intentional about what I say yes and no to mm-hmm. because it's not just gonna happen.
1: Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And so you say no to things sometimes you want to say yes to, but it's not, it's not on your top four. You know, it's not in my four buckets. I don't do it right now.
0: Yeah. Love that. So as we sit here, coming full circle in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up?
1: Uh, What came up was right now, which is pretty cool. To live a good life. I think you got to feed what you love. In exactly the way we just talked about, you know, just identifying the things you love and you want to be remembered by and making sure you feed those, not every day, but like in a week or a month. Uh, you're going to feel like you live a good life. Yeah, I feel like I'm doing that right now, even though not everything is secure and feels like we've reached our goals yet. It still feels like a good life. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: <sighs> awesome.